this week on the Backtable podcast. There's quite a bit of breadth when it comes to in-office laryngology procedures. We use a couple of lasers in the office for various and sundry issues. We also will inject steroids for subglottic stenosis, for some vocal fold injuries. We will inject Botox for neurologic voice disorders. Almost every voice patient who comes in, we do what's called video stroboscopy, which is another in-office procedure that's very, very common in the clinic. So tons and tons of variability. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Ashley Agan, hosting today. I'm a general ENT, joined, as always, by the lovely Dr. Gopi Shah. Hey, Gopi. Good morning. Hi, Ash. How are you? I'm excited for the show today. We're kind of beaming because we're so excited about our guest. Should I go ahead and introduce her? Let's do it. All right. So we have Dr. Leslie Childs. She is an associate professor of laryngology, neurolaryngology, and professional voice at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, where she's also the medical director of the Clinical Center for Voice Care. Dr. Childs is here to talk to us about in-office laryngology procedures. Welcome to the show, Leslie. It's so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I so appreciate the opportunity. We like to just start off the show by giving you an opportunity to tell the audience, you know, a little bit more about you and your background and your practice. Let's see. I'm a Pisces, my favorite color. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> so I have been uh, lucky enough to be a part of the Voice Center at UT Southwestern for going on 12 years now. And I sing. And so I actually went into this field. I'm one of those crazy people who kind of knew that I wanted to be a laryngologist in high school, right? That's that's a little weird. So I have been, like I said, at UT for 12 years, and I'm a laryngologist, which means I focus on voice, airway, and swallowing, but my true passion is voice. And one of the many reasons why I love laryngology, besides the fact that I get to take care of singers, is that I get to do so many cool procedures, most of which take place in the office, which is really, it, it makes the day interesting, it saves on healthcare dollars. Our patients are grateful that they can get a lot of stuff done without having to go under a general anesthetic. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to discuss that a little bit with everyone this morning. You set it up for us so perfectly. So why don't we go ahead and get into it? When we think about in-office laryngology procedures, there's a big range, I assume. What, what does this include Like when, when you think about all the different procedures that you do? Yeah. Oh, gosh. There's quite a bit of breadth when it comes to in-office laryngology procedures. We use a couple of lasers in the office for various and sundry issues. We also will inject steroids for subglottic stenosis, for some vocal fold injuries. We will inject Botox for neurologic voice disorders. Almost every voice patient who comes in we do what's called video stroboscopy, which is another in-office procedure that's very, very common in the clinic. So tons and tons of variability, and we can kind of get granular with some of these if you'd like. Yeah, I think, and just, you know, starting off, you mentioned video stroboscopy. Maybe we can just start there. I think it's something that is very specific 
more specific to laryngology. You know, it's it's from what I gather a big part of the exam and, and kind of helps in your decision making. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. We consider video stroboscopy to be sort of the, the standard of care uh, when it comes to examining the vocal folds, mostly because with video stroboscopy, it's really our only way to fully assess the pliability of the tissue. And you can see what's called the mucosal wave. And that sort of mucosal wave and the symmetry associated is truly critical for a clear sound. And so sometimes when we don't use a video stroboscopy or a stroboscopic light source, which more or less is a flashing light, it's synchronized to just a bit slower than the frequency of the vocal fold vibration. And basically it works by creating a bunch of static images and sort of overlaying them. So it's more or less an optical illusion. But when we don't use that flashing light source and we use continuous light, we sometimes can miss out on various features of vocal fold injuries. And so seeing that vibration can help us really be more specific in our diagnoses. It helps us follow our patients after microflap surgery and any sort of vocal fold surgery as well, because we can assess, is there an area of stiffness developing? If so, that would be one reason to consider intervening with an intralesional steroid injection into the vocal fold, those sorts of things. When you do your video stroboscopy, Leslie, do you prefer a rigid or a flexible? How do you decide which scope you're going to use? That is a great question and one we often talk about in the clinic. If I'm suspecting a, a vocal fold injury specifically, I usually prefer a rigid, which is a transoral approach. If there's a question of a very subtle paresis or even a more obvious paralysis, a vocal fold mobility concern, or if I'm suspicious of a neurologic voice disorder, so a tremor or spasmodic dysphonia, typically I will do a transnasal, a flexible video stroboscopy. And the, the reason for that is there's some, what I like to call posturing involved. When you do a rigid stroboscopy through the mouth, you know, you're stabilizing the tongue. And, you know, you kind of wonder if maybe you're going to change some of the positioning or the dynamics. And so, again, that's where through the nose, it makes it a little bit easier for them to sort of enunciate too, right? They can actually speak to you, which is really important when we're thinking about a neurologic voice disorder. They can, conversational speech is part of the exam in those settings. So those are the main reasons that typically I'll either do a rigid through the mouth or a flexible through the nose. And do you have any protocol of how you like to, let's say for the transnasal ones, of how you like to numb your patients up? Yes. For the transnasal, we universally will numb. I like to numb both nostrils because I never really know which one is going to create the least amount of resistance. So it's a 50-50 mixture of afrin or oxymetazoline and 4% lidocaine. We call it Uncola. And that is administered usually by our medical assistants or our, our nursing staff a few minutes before I come in the room. And that way, you know, it allows for some numbing to take place while I'm getting the history. And then for the rigid, the transoral exams, I don't typically numb up front. If it's someone who says, hey, I have a really bad gag reflex, or of course, we've struggled in the past, but I still want to try and get a rigid exam, I'll go ahead and spray hurricane spray at the back of the oropharynx just to see if we can't sort of numb that area and make it take the edge off is what I say. Well, this is going to take the edge off, but it'll sting really badly for about 30 seconds. 
One of my patients, actually, she refers to the hurricane spray fondly as the burning cherry. So it's the burning cherry spray, but it can really help. It can really, really, really help. I've sprayed myself so I can like say, okay, I know exactly what you're going to expect with these sprays. (laughs) Even a little bit of help, I think it makes a big difference, like from a patient experience standpoint. Yes. And, you know, one other thought with regard to both with the transnasal, the flexible, as well as the transoral, the rigid, patient positioning is absolutely key. So the position that I have my patients in is not intuitive to my patients. They always want to lean back and put their head on the headrest, right? And I say, I'm so sorry, but we're going to get up close and personal. Um, I need you leaning far forward. And then I say, we're going to sort of channel our inner turtle. So we're going to bring our head kind of forward. That's that sniffing position that we're trying to achieve both with the flexible and the transoral approach. And I think that can really help too. I'll I'll often have our assistants in the room sort of just put a, a hand gently on the back of the patient just to keep them a little bit more forward because everyone's tendency, of course, is to sort of shrug their shoulders and lean back. But the more sort of forward and anterior the chin and the head can be, the better, both with the transnasal and the rigid exam. For the transnasal, do you like to stand in front or behind? Do you have a preference of where you stand? So I'm typically to the patient's right. We have all four of our exam rooms set up the same way. And a lot of that is because the three laryngologists, we are all right-handed. And so it's quite convenient. So basically, I'm standing to the patient's right. They're facing me and I'm to their right. And then the monitors that I'm using are to their left. And it makes it nice because then you're looking kind of towards your working arm. Even when I do bedside procedures, I really like to try and set up the room in that way because then the assistant stands to my right or to the patient's left and it works out well. And just kind of like segueing into the other procedures, for many of them, you're going to be using a scope. So the setup is similar. Are there any like additional things that you change depending on if you're doing, you know, a laser versus an injection versus Botox? That is a great question. So in terms of the room setup, kind of where the monitors are and where the assistant stands, it's always the same. So that makes it nice. The one sort of nugget is... The assistant's job is super important, and it takes a while to sort of train up the folks that are that will be assisting because not only do they need to be able to give us a outstanding view, but they also have to kind of be out of our way. And so we train them to sort of park the scope. For example, if I'm doing a transoral filler placement, an injection augmentation, and I'm going to approach transoral. Usually what happens is I'll have our assistant place the tip of the flexible laryngoscope at the sort of molecular region and wait for me to come in through the mouth and then follow me in. Okay, so it's that following me in that's key kind of to continue along that filler path. It really helps if the assistant enters the nostril on the contralateral side of the cord you're injecting because when you start to inject that filler, you're going to be looking at the infraglottic region because that's where it's going to feel first. And so you'll see it better if you're sort of looking across at the contralateral vocal fold. And so that's just another thing that we have found really helpful. The other thing, when I'm doing a transoral approach, which is definitely the most difficult for our patients to tolerate, right? We can get to the vocal folds through the neck as well. But 
transoral, in some ways, it depends on the patients, and we can talk about this a little bit more too, but in some ways it's a little, I like the idea of seeing my needle the entire time, <laughs> especially when I'm, when I'm doing a filler. And if you do a transcervical approach, specifically through the cricothyroid membrane, you're actually coming in from underneath the vocal fold and you're trying to stay submucosal so you don't get that view the entire time. But anyway, back to the transoral approach, when I'm numbing those patients, I typically like to use what's called an Abraham cannula. And the Abraham cannula is curved in much the same way that the applicator for the filler is curved. And the reason why I like to sort of simulate that with the Abraham cannula versus a channeled scope, right? The alternative would be to drip numbing using a channeled scope. But I really like to specifically use an Abraham cannula, which is a curved cannula that goes through the mouth. It almost looks like a maxillary antrostomy or a maxillary suction, but it's a little different in terms of how it's curved. The reason why I like that is because it sort of prepares both the patient and the assistant and me as we're doing this, because that's going to be the exact trajectory, the exact feeling they're going to feel when the actual curved applicator is going through the mouth, if that makes sense. So that, that's sort of the method to the madness with me. I really do prefer not using a channeled scope to numb when I'm doing a transoral approach. And that's because I want to use that Abraham cannula to get my patient really used to sort of breathing in and out through the mouth, which is not intuitive at all, and sort of getting used to that sort of feeling of, okay, I'm going to be gently grasping your tongue. You're going to be sticking your tongue out, breathing through the mouth, and here I go. I'm going to go past your tongue, and I'm going to have an instrument there. So that's why we do it that way. Yeah. Do you get the flexible scope to that area, you know, to the pharynx and then pass it over to your medical assistant? Or do they drive it all the way? Or I tell you what, our team is outstanding. They drive it the whole way. They start, you know, they're like, boom, the whole thing through the nose, everything, both through the numbing. When we're training them, usually either, you know, one of the assistants that's training the new assistant or I will go ahead and pass it and get it there, right? At first, they're just holding it steady and not actually manipulating it. But eventually, absolutely, they're going through the nose. They're doing it all. Yeah. And they're standing on the patient's left. Yes. Trying to not block the screen. Yes. And hold still. Okay. And then you're standing on the patient's right and you, do you hold the tongue with like a piece of gauze or something to kind of help? I sure do. Yep. And I, again, that sort of sniffing position, even with same position for the exams for every procedure we do. So it's leaning forward with that sort of channel, the turtle, the inner turtle, and then I really like to, before I even start, once I have their mouth open and they've stuck their tongue out and I'm gently grasping it, yes, I use just a four by four gauze. I really want them to prove to me that they know what it means to breathe through their mouth. Because a lot of times people don't, right? They just start breathing through their nose or sometimes we'll even very gently pinch the nose and say, okay, now let's experience what it is to breathe out of the mouth. And they're like, oh, the other way I'll sometimes describe it is I'll say it's like a pant. You're like a puppy dog and you're panting. I said, but I don't want you to pant fast. The other thing is you want that breathing to be really, really quiet. Because if it's really quiet, that means their glottis is not moving. So that's the other thing. Quiet, slow, pant is sort of those, those three words that I'll use. I think a lot of the, the success of these in-office procedures is sort of dependent on how you can prepare your patient and sort of coach them through it. 
You know, I always tell folks when I'm doing that trans oral numbing with Abraham cannula and dripping 4% lidocaine, I mean, that's tough. We call that the laryngeal gargle. I always say that's going to be the hardest part, right? Because what you do is you drip and right before you drip, you have them say E. And then what will happen is that 4% lidocaine will sort of bubble right on top of the glottis. And that's really kind of marinating those tissues in that 4% lidocaine that can really, really pave the way for you being able to manipulate. How much do you drip through the Abraham cannula? Like when they are saying E, is that just like a half a cc, a cc? How much do you have to use? Yeah. I, so we load up four cc's. We try not to go beyond four cc's of the 4% lidocaine. And I usually do three separate kind of gargles. And so about a cc per experience. And the, the very first one, I say, you know, this is going to be super hard and you're likely going to cough. This is not going to hurt you if it goes in your airway. If you swallow it, it's okay. But then, you know, by the third time, you want to know that they're numb. And the way that you'll know that is they're going to be much less reactive as the lidocaine is hitting the glottis. And they'll be able to sustain that E for, for longer. And then you can be pretty confident that they're numb at that point. When you're putting it through the Abraham cannula, do you have to use a bigger syringe and like have some air with it so it kind of shoots down like you do when you're numbing through a side port just to kind of give it that extra or not really? It just kind of goes. It just kind of goes. Yep. We just use a 5cc syringe. And so it's you don't really require any extra pressure or anything. The other thing I like about the Abraham cannula when doing transoral approaches versus the the side port or the channeled scope is it's a lot more predictable as far as when it's going to land. Because if I have my patients say E too early and then they run out of breath, <laughs> you know, so I guess that's another sort of advantage to the Abraham cannula. The other thing that we'll sometimes do, especially with our airway patients, when we're doing intralesional steroid injections into the stenosis, we call it the peace pipe. We have all these pet names for what we use, but it's a nebulizer with 4% lidocaine inside it. And so there's a mouthpiece. And so they hook up to the mouthpiece and breathe in. You know, we usually do about two minutes worth, which is just one or two cc's of the 4% lidocaine. I like to, in those patients where I'm doing things under the vocal folds, I really like to incorporate the nebulizer just because it sort of achieves the same thing that, you know, how sometimes you can numb the airway by just sticking a needle in, right, through the, through the CT membrane, pulling back, make sure you're in their airway and then drip and then they cough. I find the peace pipe a little bit more gentle and it's a way to achieve that same goal, which is getting the lidocaine infraglottic and subglottic. And when you're using the Abraham cannula, and you mentioned on that first treatment that they might cough or they, you know, might react more, are you removing the Abraham cannula and letting go of their tongue and letting them have that cough episode. And then it's like, okay, give it a minute and then we'll go again, kind of. For sure. And the scope stays in? The scope, generally we try and keep the scope in. If it's difficult to pass the scope through the nose, we absolutely try and keep it in. Sometimes when I'm completely done numbing, if it seems like the patient needs a break, we'll come out even with the scope. But absolutely, I do come out with the Abraham cannula each time to just let them completely recover, cough, 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 re-catch their breath, and I'm counseling them. This is the toughest part. You know, if you can get through this, you can absolutely get through the rest. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have to ever add more lidocaine? Or how do you know if you just got to give it more time or give them more lido? Yeah. 
it's sometimes tough to know. I think one of the ways that I can tell they're numb enough is if they can truly not even flinch on that third drip when they say E and they can sustain it for like a minute. You know, that's a, when they're just going E. You're like, oh my goodness. Okay, this patient's ready, right? But if it's like E, you know, cough, 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 that would be obviously a sign that they're probably not numb enough. They'll also, you know, as we get closer and closer to the glottis, when I actually have the needle in my hand, if they're flinching or it looks like they're about to cough, that tells me we're probably not numb enough. So it's usually pretty obvious when they're not numb enough. I don't know that more time, in some ways, I worry a little bit about waiting too long with these topical anesthetics because it can backfire a little bit. We can end up in sort of a scenario where we end up with like, almost a hypersecretory sort of phenomenon where they're just like, they have so many secretions. And that tells me that one of two things has likely happened. One, I potentially overnumbed. Two, I waited too long. So I think that the preparation time and the coaching and all of this, it's going to take a few minutes anyway. So I don't intentionally wait an extra amount of time after numbing. I usually, once they can do that third laryngeal gargle pretty confidently, that's my sign that I need to go. And it's it's goat. Yeah. So from a time standpoint, just for getting the patient numb, is that typically five minutes, 10 minutes, like on average? Probably about five minutes. I know I tell them, I tell my patients, you know, we're going to book this in a 30 minute spot, but the numbing is going to take about five to six minutes and the injection will take about 30 seconds. <laughs> But that numbing part's the most important part. So. That's right. That's where, the, that's where the magic happens, for sure. And then afterward, obviously, it's important to keep them NPO for at least an hour. I usually say one to two hours, even water, because we're worried about aspiration, want to prevent that. Do you guys have to monitor these patients when you do these? For example, with your airway stenosis patients, do you have to monitor SATs and put leads on? That is such a good question. We have not incorporated that into our practice, although there is literature that verifies there are definite hemodynamic changes and some instability built in. Well, because I would worry about like laryngospasm or something. Has, does that happen? I mean, I don't know. Those are the things, I guess, or laser within the airway. Right. Yes. Uh, laryngospasm absolutely happens. When laryngospasm happens, we obviously come out with everything and I'm right there next to them, coaching them, breathing in through the nose, sniff in through the nose and breathe out through pursed lips. This is temporary. You're going to be okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. This is normal. Those sorts of prompts can be helpful, but no, we don't typically hook our folks up to any sort of pulse oximetry or, you know, like you said, no EKG leads or telemetry or anything like that. And with the laryngospasm, it will break within a minute or so. Absolutely. It, it will. It always will break. I think, you know, if there's a family member that's sort of starting to get anxious and making things potentially worse, which happens sometimes, <laughs> we'll just ask them to step out. And, you know, I won't leave their side. It's a lot of coaching. And yes, laryngospasm is always temporary always temporary. We have not had any sort of concerning issues, thank goodness. Uh, we haven't had to urgently establish an airway or anything like that. And if that's going to happen, is that usually during when you're numbing things up, when you're, when you're dripping the lidocaine on there? Yes, usually after like the first one. If it's going to happen, it's usually that first time. And then once they're numb enough, the chances of laryngospasm are much lower. 
Yeah, that makes sense. What percent of patients that you see, are you just like from meeting them, are you like, nah, this patient's probably going to be better in the OR, whether it's medical or just being able to tolerate it? And are there red flags for you? That's a very, very good question. I will say that would be one advantage of doing a flexible scope. So if this is someone where I'm thinking, hmm, we may want to consider a procedure in the office, right? I don't do any procedures with a rigid scope. I always have a flexible scope in place. And so if the patient doesn't tolerate the flexible laryngoscopy, just when you're looking, you know, whether it's with the continuous light, more often it's going to be with the stroboscopic light source, that's your first indicator that, hmm, they probably are not going to be the best candidate for an in-office approach. Sometimes it's helpful to distinguish between, is this patient, is it more of an anxiety issue or is it more of a gag issue? That's where sort of reading the patient is going to kind of help quite a bit because we do sometimes prescribe Valium. I'll give my patients, especially if they're under 65, 70 years, I'm more comfortable prescribing Valium. I'll usually give five milligrams. I'll ask them to take it one hour before the procedure and they need to have a driver but that, I think, can really help take the edge off if anxiety seems like it's the more troubling part. But if it truly is gag and they are just not having it, I just say this is not going to be an ideal in-office approach. I will say, though, it's the minority of patients that we end up taking to the operating room for things like fillers. You can usually get that sense when you first meet them and examine them, especially if you're going to do a transnasal approach to examining them. Yeah, sometimes every now and then you'll have a patient that it starts gagging when the scope is in the nose, like before, you know, like you're like, whoa. Yes. <laughs> totally. And I'll even sometimes say, hey, do you have trouble when you go to the dentist? And yeah. they'll be like, oh yeah, my dentist says I, and I'm like, oh gosh, if they can't even get dental work done, no way am I getting all the way to the larynx, you know? Yeah. So we talked about getting everything anesthetized and particularly when we're thinking about the context of transoral injection, we talked about anesthetizing the subglottis. Speaking to the other categories, we talked about some laser procedures or Botox. Are there any additional things in your anesthetic protocol for those procedures or is it the same? So for the laser procedure, with both our blue and our green light lasers, both of our angioselective or angiolytic lasers that we use, the fiber actually goes through the channeled scope. So I never need to approach them transorally to get to whatever I'm doing. So in those scenarios, I will numb through the port, through the side port. But we have a catheter, and I think most folks use a catheter that fits through the port and then we'll hook up the 4% lidocaine. And so that is one exception where I won't use the Abraham cannula to numb my laser patients. And mostly it's just because everything I'm going to be doing is through that channel anyway. So as far as the other procedures that I do, when I'm injecting Botox into the true cords for tremor or spasmodic dysphonia, I don't numb at all. I know that sounds sort of barbaric potentially, but it's a tiny little 27-gauge monopolar electrode needle. And some folks will numb the skin before, just, you know, with 1% lidocaine with epinephrine before injecting into the true cords. But generally, I usually tell my patients, you know, it's an extra stick. It sort of creates a little bolus of fluid right where I'm really trying to palpate. 
And most of the folks that have had it with numbing of the skin and without say, eh, I don't know that it's that much worse or that different really without the numbing. Yeah. But when I'm injecting false fold Botox, I'll usually numb, you know, again, with the Abraham cannula, sometimes with the nebulizer if we really need to. But generally, the numbing is pretty consistent for most every in-office laryngology procedure we do. For the Botox, for the false folds, are you using your Abraham cannula and doing that transoral to make sure you're in the false folds? Or is that something that you do transcervical or transcutaneous as well? Yeah. So my preference for that is transcervical. And the way that I access the false vocal folds is through the thyrohyoid membrane. So it's transthyrohyoid, right? And in someone with a thin neck, usually I'll try transcervical first. And the reason why that's my preference, even though it sort of contradicts what I was saying earlier with the filler where I like to see my needle the whole time, it's mostly because Filler is typically injected either transoral or transcricothyroid. And transcricothyroid membrane, you really are coming from underneath. You can inject filler transthyrohyoid as well, but it's not as frequent, at least in my practice. But to get to the false vocal folds, they are right there. I mean, you're going to enter at the petiole of the epiglottis, and I typically like to stay submucosal the entire time. And so in those folks, the Abraham cannula sometimes is helpful, sometimes is not. Sometimes we can get away with no Abraham cannula whatsoever, especially if I truly will stay submucosal. Once you sort of break that mucosal barrier and enter the intraluminal airway, glottis, the vestibule, they're likely going to cough unless you've, you've done some sort of topical numbing pretreatment. The Abraham cannula isn't necessarily a requirement when you're doing a transcervical false vocal fold Botox injection through the thyrohyoid membrane. So I want to dig into that a little bit more. <laughs> uh, um, so when you're doing this transthyrohyoid false fold injection of Botox, so are you entering in the midline? And then you angle the needle and you're kind of just staying right submucosal and you can see like so much so that you can see where your needle is on the scope or is it like a, you know, you're feeling it and you know the direction? Great question. So I have the needle bent in two spots. It's sort of like at the hub and then about halfway down, it's also bent. So it's got two bends on it. Okay. And usually I'm using a 25-gauge needle, okay? So I bend it in two different spots, and I enter right at the midline, right at the thyroid notch, basically. You're feeling the notch. You numb the skin beforehand because that's a sizable needle. And you enter right in the midline, and it's tough to feel. Sometimes it's a guess. But you want to sort of get in and sort of past the epiglottis, if you can, the tip of the epiglottis, and then you're diving south. So you're diving south, and that's when you're going to come out, or at least you're going to actually see the needle poking at the petiole of the epiglottis. So you're sort of going in and down. And then once you kind of can, I sort of jostle the tip of my needle so I can see it with my assistant with the flexible laryngoscopy. Then I just start to mosey my way one way and then back up after I inject and then mosey my way the other way. Does that make sense? 
So you got to get around that tip of the epiglottis and you see it and it's like, oh, there I am. And then you got to decide which go right or left. But you're submucosal. Submucosal. The whole time, Leslie, or... But when you come over the epiglottis, your needle's out, right? In the airway so you can see it. And then you're going submucosal. Oh, you're submucosal the whole time. It's all submucosal. Yep. So it's all submucosal. The only time you'll really see your needle is at the petiole. So you're not necessarily seeing it dive. You're just seeing it right there when once you go in and down, then you're looking at the petiole. And there you see it blotting or moving, right? At the tip, the tip of your needle at the petiole, you're still, you're all submucosal. But that's usually the first time you're going to see your needle at the petiole. And then you can sort of, like I said, mosey your way both directions to either of the false vocal folds. Sometimes my first side, whether it be the right or the left, that's just based on kind of which seems more straightforward at that moment. When I'm backing my way to the petiole again and trying to get to the other side, sometimes I will come out briefly and you'll actually see the needle. Hopefully it doesn't trigger a cough, but sometimes it can. If they're numb enough, typically they tolerate it just fine. And are you using an EMG? No, not for those. For those, the false fold injections, there's no need because we're visualizing it. It's really just with the true cords that we'll use the EMG. And that the true cord injections for the Botox, that we do come through the cricothyroid membrane. And that's with EMG guidance. So that, that helps us know when we're in that sort of TALCA complex, which is, you know, those main adductors, that's usually our target when we're injecting the true cords. So we need the EMG for that, but we don't need the EMG for the false fold injections. And remind me, I'm trying to remember like the findings on the EMG. It's like it sounds like rain on a tin roof or something, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yes, it's it, it, we're listening for that. And typically I'll have folks say, E. When I hear the beginnings of the rain on a tin roof, I will then say, go ahead and say E, and then it should get much more prominent. Those action potentials should have kind of sharper peaks if you're actually looking at the screen and should be rapidly firing because, again, that's just a sign that TALCA complex is contracting at that moment and your electrode needle is in the right spot. Not everyone uses phonation to confirm, so not everyone has their patient say E when it sounds like they're in the right place and when you feel that you're in the right place. That's the other thing about the true vocal fold Botox injections. There is, and I, I, we talk about this a lot with our residents, there is sort of some haptic feedback, if that makes sense, because there's a certain feeling when you pass through the CT membrane, and then there's a certain feeling when you actually enter muscle. And you get that sort of haptic feedback, and that that's yet another sort of guide. Even though we have this haptic feedback, we've got the EMG video and audio signals. I tell my patients, you know, this is not necessarily a black and white science. You know, there's some gray here. We try and make it as black and white as we can, but that's maybe a discussion for another day with regard to sort of (laughs) Botox and response. But in terms of sort of the technicalities, how to get there and what to feel and look for, I do also bend the needle um, that I'm injecting the true cords with when I'm injecting Botox. And I enter in that CT membrane. Usually I have one finger on the cricoid. And so I'm entering just above that. And I enter just off midline and sort of head towards the ipsilateral ear. Okay. And my needle is bent upwards just a little bit. And that's usually going to be your best bet for sort of being able to get into that TALCA complex. And, you know, some folks, 
if they have scarring, if they've had some sort of ACDF or thyroid procedure or something where they happen to have some fibrosis in that region can be a little bit trickier. I usually write in my note if there was something sort of unique about their anatomy, and that helps me the next time around too. Yeah. Are you submucosal for the entire time for that injection too, or do you come out and see your needle? Yes. And we're not using scope guidance with that. So I hope I'm submucosal the whole time. I will say when you enter the airway accidentally, it's usually quite obvious. It creates on the EMG a very sort of hollow, almost an echo sound. It's like a microphone, but that's like in the middle of a wind tunnel. That sound plus coughing, because your patient will typically cough, means you're in the airway. Gotcha. And the hard part with that, once I enter the airway, it's tricky because on that side, my fear is that even when I come out and try again, my fear is that some of it's going to leak because I've now just made a hole, right? So I have there's a there's a, a point of egress. So let's say I get in the airway, I hear the sound, they're coughing. I come out, let my patient recover. I'll sometimes tell my patient, okay, we're going to try this side again. But if I make you cough again, it means that I probably need to redose and maybe I'll put it all on the other side. And that's a possibility in these patients with neurologic voice disorders. You actually can treat the unilateral cord. Even though this is a bilateral vocal fold phenomenon, we still get that sort of afferent loop from the glottis back to the brain. And so even if we have to double dose one side that time, it's okay. In fact, I have some folks where we'll treat unilateral cord every time because either technically it's just really always a challenge on a certain side in given their anatomy. Or sometimes we notice that the breathy phase, which is something to expect, especially after true cord Botox, which is sort of a whisper weak sound, sometimes that can be minimized when you do a unilateral injection versus a bilateral injection. So it's something to think about. Yeah. What is the dosing? You know, how many units are you doing for the true folds versus false folds? Yeah, there's quite a difference. So for true cord, the average starting dose for me and most of my patients is one unit per side. So a total of two units. The reason why the false cord injections with Botox can help is because what we know is that some of the, the TA fibers actually feed into the false vocal folds. And so that's why even with false vocal fold injections, we can get improvement at the glottic level. The starting dose for the false fold injections is quite a bit. It's like five times that. It's usually five to seven and a half units per false vocal fold. And what you're doing is when you're injecting the Botox into the false vocal folds, you're trying to create sort of a superficial bleb on each side. That's typically what we try to do. We just we want it to be sort of more of a superficial injection. And then we can actually also, we see it. It's much more obvious that we're in the right spot. And so, of course, for that one, we're using the scope, the false cord, but we don't use the scope for the true cord injections. That one, we really are relying on our EMG. What's your concentration of Botox? Yes. So we typically, we call it single strength. And so um, in a 100-unit vial of the traditional um, botulinum toxin, we will put four cc's of saline. And so that means 2.5 units per 0.1 milliliter. So 2.5 units per 0.1 milliliter is what we consider single strength. And so based on that concentration, we then can dilute using saline, sterile saline, to pretty much any dose that we agree on uh, with our patients. So I have a little cheat sheet (laughs) that I use because I don't want to be doing math on the fly. And so I basically have almost every (laughs) 
concentration both above 2.5 units per 0.1 and below to sort of help me get get it there. Generally, we want to be in, we try and stick to about 0.1 milliliters of volume in each vocal fold, if that makes sense. So you got to dilute it down for that. You got it. For that one, one unit per side. Yes, that's it. Gotcha. If you end up having to just treat the single side for both sides, if you will, do you just double that dose or is it not like correlated that way? You just, it's like one and a half or? Nope. I usually just double it. Yep. So if I was going to put a unit on the right and a unit on the left, and for some reason I I get into the airway and then they're coughing and I'm just convinced that it wasn't in on the right side, I'll just put two units in on the left, just double it on the other side. To jump back to filler and augmentation, going into just a little bit more detail about knowing how much to inject, kind of seeing what the changes that you're seeing as you're injecting it and, you know, kind of the, the end point and, you know, can you unpack that a little bit more? Sure. Yes, that's that's tough. I will say if I had to choose sort of the most common average amount of volume injected for paralysis, probably about 0.7 mLs on a side. But that is very much an average. And really, your metric is based on how it looks when it's filling. When you have the needle in place, when I do transoral, I use a Zomed transoral injector with the 27-gauge needle at the end. When you start to fill, like I said, we want to look infraglottic first. And if we see it filling infraglottic, the likelihood of a superficial migration or superficial injection is much, much lower. So I feel really confident when I'm seeing it fill from the undersurface. And then basically, you want to just, I usually fill up that vocal fold until it's almost pretty much starting to leak out of the hole. And it, 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 the reason being the material, the hyaluronic acid products, for example, the Juvederm, the Restylane, they market themselves for lasting about four to six months. I would say that's a little on the long end in terms of actual patient outcomes. And so I just want to make sure we get the, the bang for the buck. But what's important is after you really kind of make that vocal fold chubby, the patients are going to sound pressed or strained. They're going to sound kind of sound like this when they leave your office. And so I prepare them for that. Otherwise, they think, what the heck did Dr. Childs just do to me, you know? And so I'll, I'll prepare and I'll say, hey, you're likely going to sound pressed or strained potentially for a few days, maybe even a week. Sometimes people are pressed or strained for even longer. That's normal. The water in the injectate absorbs over that time. We, we really do want to over-inject intentionally in order to get that sort of straight contour, get that sort of glottic competence restored. So especially with paralysis, I think it's important to put as much as you can comfortably. I will say if I'm using a riskier material, so the bone paste, the calcium hydroxylapatite, caha, which comes in various manufacturers will, will make the caha, I'm a little bit more conservative with that one. Because that of all of these synthetic injectables is probably the most dangerous one and the riskiest one if it migrates superficially. Because if it migrates superficially, the bone paste can cause really prominent roughness in the sound because the vocal fold is stiff. You know how earlier we were talking about video stroboscopy and how we want to see that pliability? We want to see that mucosal wave. When the bone paste is superficial, that mucosal wave, that pliability is compromised. And it can take a year 
for that bone paste to absorb. I have taken a few patients to the operating room to try and sort of remove bone paste, you know, if they come to me and it's superficially placed. But I I generally don't find it to be that fulfilling a procedure. I mean, if the filler was placed within the past few days, maybe, but generally we counsel our patients, hey, this is going to be a long year for you. But this will absorb. It's just going to take a long time. PET scans actually will show the calcium hydroxylapatite in that paraglottic space for up to 18 months. So that is not a very forgiving material. So I always feel like that bone paste needs to have some sort of extra warnings involved. And then there's a, there's a newer product that's coming out. It's called Silk that we're still learning about and very hopeful about that is not supposed to have that sort of risk of stiffness if it does end up migrating superficially. But again, I think some of the strategies we were talking about where you're really looking infraglottic first, injecting very, very slowly, I think those skills help quite a bit, even when you're using the bone paste. But I do inject less volume with the bone paste than I do with pretty much all the other injectables, just because of that superficial migration risk. And where do you enter? Like, where's your needle going when you're doing that? Yeah. So if we if we use sort of the vocal process as our landmark, usually it's anterior to the vocal process where you can kind of see on, at the back of the glottis, you can kind of see that cartilage right under the mucosal cover. That's the vocal process. So you want to be anterior to that and lateral, pretty far lateral in that paraglottic space. And I think that's another important point is if the needle isn't lateral enough, the risk of superficial migration increases. Almost you're pushing that false vocal fold just slightly laterally as you are about to enter the vocal fold. That's sort of your, that's how lateral you want to be. It's probably more lateral than we might imagine. So you can't really be too lateral, probably, as long as you're not in the false fold. (laughs) Right. That's right. Yeah. The other thing that's tricky is you can't make more than one hole because if you make, and this is true in the operating room as well. It will leak out of that hole. And you also got to be careful you don't go through and through. I've, I've done all of these things before. So going through and through, right? So then you're actually injecting into the subglottis, you know, like it's just flowing out there. And you're like, hmm, I wonder why the vocal fold isn't filling up. Oh, I see. So anyway, those are things that things to look out for. And interestingly, and I, I think I'm not the only laryngologist who feels this way, I actually find that injecting in the office when I'm putting filler in is easier than injecting in the operating room. When I'm injecting in the operating room, I really like to have either a 12 or even a 70 degree scope in my other hand. So I don't actually like to use the microscope. I like to have the Hopkins rod telescope showing me that infraglottic region. And I think that's just a little easier to achieve in the office with that flexible scope, contralateral nostril staring right at that infraglottic region. So I know, boom, when I'm when I'm injecting, I'm like, okay, I'm deep enough. I'm lateral enough. All those things. In terms of other intralesional injections with steroids for other lesions, do you do that as well in the office? Yes. And is that kind of similar to using the Abraham cannula, I would imagine, to, for example, for granuloma or something like that? Yes, absolutely. I, Abraham cannula, those folks, and really the two lesions that I will inject steroids into are granulomas, vocal process granulomas, and nodular changes, vocal fold nodules. Now, in neither of those is it a plan A. These are usually a plan C or a plan D for the nodular patients. We consider those to be non-operative lesions. And so in someone who's been super compliant, 
done the voice therapy, reduced the vocal dose as much as possible, but still struggles with pretty prominent keratosis or thickening nodular changes, intralesional steroid, very, very superficial actually, injected really superficially into those nodular changes, can be absolute game changers. For a granuloma patients, again, we need to optimize them medically. We usually treat for reflux. We have them using a steroid inhaler. We have them really monitoring their coughing and throat clearing. Assuming all that's done, an intralesional steroid injection into the granuloma directly into the lesion, really targeting the base, can be helpful. But I will say the granuloma injections in terms of patient tolerance, are probably the most difficult because the back of the larynx is the most sensate part, right? It's sort of an evolutionary advantage. The back of the larynx is what's supposed to sort of detect any sort of esophageal regurgitation or reflux and boom, slam shut. So those folks require a little more numbing when you're injecting into the vocal process granulomas. And is that a transoral approach? Yes. I don't know that. I think it would be really tough to go even transthyrohyoid to get there. You'd probably have to use a spinal needle, which I I believe I've done before in folks who just cannot tolerate transoral. But transoral generally for for both the nodular and the granuloma is my my first approach, my first try. What are you using to do that injection? Kenalog 40. Uh, Is that what you mean? Which steroid? I was going to ask that as well, but also like what, because the fillers come with the injector, right? So like what instrument do you use to place that injection? The only filler that I use, what comes with the company that actually sells it is one of the Kaha manufacturers will come with a a, a syringe. But all of the other hyaluronic acid fillers and all of our steroid injections, I'm using the Zomed. So it's X-O-M-E-D, the Zomed transoral injector. It's curved, comes with 27 gauge peel packed needles that you just screw on. Okay, so that's what you use to inject your steroid. Yes, that's really our workhorse. We use we use that Zomed injector most of the time, and it's just a teeny tiny little dose of the Kenalog forty. Yeah, less than less than one cc in usually both scenarios. I will say when I'm injecting into the subglottis for airway patients, I'll go through the cricothyroid membrane, also with a twenty five gauge needle. In those patients, I generally inject two cc's of Kenalog 40 circumferentially into the narrowing. So I know we're kind of getting a little bit limited on time, and I feel like lasers in office for laryngology as well as airways could be their own. But just to do a little speed round while we have you. Yes. And since we're talking about injecting airway stenosis or subglottic stenosis, Can you walk me through, I know every airway is going to be a little different when they come in with stenosis, but how you set those patients up and are you injecting first? You know, are you lasering first? When do you decide to laser? Do you ever do balloons? I know it's a lot of questions in one. (laughs) No. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. So there are laryngologists who will balloon and sometimes even laser in the office. I have not done either yet. So really my sort of main approach with the subglottic stenosis patients are serial intralesional steroid injections. Usually what I'll do, and this is quite common, I think, amongst most laryngologists, I will dilate them in the operating room, okay? And then I'll do a series of three intralesional steroid injections separated by about four weeks. Then once they get symptomatic again, I'll do another series of three intralesional steroid injections separated by four weeks. So no laser, no balloon, at least yet, (laughs) in the office for me and my patients. And you said these are going to go transcervical. 
You got it. Through that cricothyroid membrane, angling the needle down. And there you see your needle the whole time. And again, a lot of those folks need the peace pipe that nebulized lidocaine. <clears throat> it's a nice way. Sometimes I'll even Abraham cannula as well, you know, just to really make sure we're numb because that flexible laryngoscope is going to pass through the cords. So anytime you're passing that flexible laryngoscope through the cords, you really want to make sure that they're appropriately anesthetized. And for that injection, you're not submucosal. You're in the airway. You can see your needle, right? You got it. And you yes. just kind of work in a circle and yep. give the blood. Yep, just yeah. circumferential. You got oh. it. And the advantage is these intralesional steroid injections can be wonderful for patients who are requiring the operating room for dilations more than three or four times a year. The patients that can go nine months or longer than a year, they're not going to be great candidates for these intralesional steroid injections. That's more work or more trouble than is worth it, if that makes sense. But those that are, are pretty severe, it has really, really been wonderful in sort of prolonging these intervals between surgery. And then in terms of lasers, you had mentioned the blue and green light angiolytic lasers. When do you use those lasers? Those are fabulous tools, and really they're chromophore, or the, the tissue that absorbs the laser energy in both the blue and the green or angiolytic, angioselective lasers, is oxyhemoglobin. So oxyhemoglobin is what really absorbs that laser energy. And so tissues that make great targets are ones that are associated with blood vessels. So that includes cancer. That includes dysplasia, precancer. It includes papilloma. Those are probably the three... So Carcinoma, dysplasia, and papilloma are probably the three main targets that we use this green and blue light lasers for. We use them in the operating room, but we also have them in our office. So it's it's really convenient for our patients. You know, we, we talked about a lot today in just reflecting on the last several years. You know, are there things that you do differently now than you did 10 years ago? Or, you know, what kind of pearls or, you know, little... little bits of wisdom do you want to leave our listeners with as we Aww. wrap up? <laughs> you guys are so great. I love this question. I, you know, I hope I do a lot of things differently than I did 10 years ago because I always want to be learning and changing. And my patients have taught me so much and my residents and you guys, I mean, all my colleagues, my partners. Um, so, but to be more specific, I rely on my assistants more. I mean, I never let them go through the nose at the very beginning. You know what I mean? But wow. Lucky me, I'm surrounded by these pros with whom I get to partner every day. So I certainly rely on their help. I think timing of the nose medicine, for example, that's something I've realized, oh, a few extra minutes of, you know, have them spray before I even walk in, that can really help, even just with an exam. We weren't using, well, we started, we were starting using the the uh, the angioselective lasers back 12 years ago, but we certainly use them more now than we used to. The intralesional steroid injections for subglottic stenosis is something that has sort of taken off within the past decade. So that's something we're doing more frequently. Of course, these synthetic injectables, they've sort of evolved over time as well. We have better products. The nebulized lidocaine, the peace pipe, we started that, I want to say, a few years before COVID in the pre-COVID era. And then, of course, during COVID, we had to say goodbye to the peace pipe just because it more or less nebulizes. It was the heyday of the peace pipe. <laughs> it was, I know, right? <laughs> um, and so that, you know, we're using again, thank goodness. But yes, I think I hope that I continue to refine and improve and learn from mostly my patients. I got to tell you, the moment the patients stop teaching me is a sign that I need to get out of this field. You know, my patients, my <laughs> colleagues, yeah. always learning, always trying to get better and evolve with the, the changing science and innovation. 
That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Leslie. It was wonderful to see you and talk with you. Um, I learned a ton. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And it was a real honor. And I'm so glad y'all do this. It's a great effort. And I know very well received and appreciated. So I love being a part of it. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.